This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Forty years, the Jewish nation were in the Midbar, and at the very end of that, Moshe Rabbeinu explains many of the mitzvahs that are going to apply in Eretz and that didn't apply in the Midbar. One of those mitzvahs was that in Eretz you could eat meat whenever you like. In the Midbar, primarily we ate mun, and we had water from the bear, but meat was only eaten as part of a carbon. But Moshe Reino explains that once you get to the land of Israel, whatever you want, whenever you want, wherever you want, you could eat meat. But there's something very, very unusual that Moshe Reino says before that. He says, When Hashem will expand your borders, then you'll say, I want to eat meat. Because then you'll want to eat meat. And Rashi is bothered by the following. It seems to be that when Hashem expands your borders, and when you're prosperous, that's when you should desire meat. But it almost sounds like you shouldn't eat meat before that. Explains Rashi, that's exactly what the Torah is telling us. Lim de Torah, derech Eretz, the Torah is teaching us decency, propriety, derech Eretz. Shalis ava adam lechobasa, a person shouldn't have a desire to eat meat. Elamitoch rechobas yadayim va'usher, except from a situation of expanse and wealth. What the Torah is teaching us is you shouldn't desire meat until you can afford it. And once Hashem allows the bounty to flow and you're prosperous, at that point you should desire meat. But before that you shouldn't, again, the Torah is teaching us, that you shouldn't desire meat until you can afford it. And that's how Rashi explains the Pasuk. And I believe that that Rashi is very, very difficult to understand. Number one, desire is not something you can turn on and off like a switch. Meaning, I like meat. I like the way it tastes. I like a nice car. I like the way these things look. I wish I were programmable, but I'm not. But even more than that, it's very clear that the Torah doesn't want us desiring meat if we can't afford it. What's wrong with desiring meat if you can't afford it? I understand why I shouldn't desire someone else's property, someone else's wife. I get that. That's wrong for me to desire because it leads to all kinds of issues, all kinds of problems. But let's assume I can't afford meat. <clears throat> why does the Torah care and say you shouldn't desire, only if you could afford it, only when you have only when you have wealth, that's when you should desire meat. What's wrong with desiring meat, even if you can't afford it? You're not going to steal, and you can't afford it, you're not going to eat it, you desire it. What's wrong with that? So I'd like to see if we could better understand what this Rashi is sharing with us, because I believe it's actually a fundamental principle. And to explain to you what that is, I'd like to share with you something about the way we humans work. And that is, desire is something that we don't think much about, but desire is something that we're typically cultured in, we're schooled in, we're brought up in it, but desire typically is trained and learned. And I'll give you a good example. In many, many societies, corpulence was considered a sign of status. For millennia, mankind basically could afford the food that that they could eat and barely anything more. And for a person to be able to eat enough food that not only does he have enough to sustain himself, but he can actually grow fat, and that was a sign of extreme wealth. They talk about a balbusser back in a few hundred years ago. A corpulent man would walk into the shtibel and people say, ooh, you're a balbusser, he's a rich man. Because if you had enough money, not just to eat what you needed to stay alive, but actually to grow fat, you were very, very wealthy. And in many cultures, fat was considered beautiful. In the Greek society, Large women, fat women, were considered an object of desire. In the Pacific Islands, the larger the better. 
There's a story told about one African king who would only marry a woman if she was so fat that she literally couldn't walk. In those days, in those cultures, being large and being heavy was considered a sign of beauty. In our day and age, it's not the way it is. If you speak to a shantlin and you ask about the girl, the shantlin use every euphemism under the sun rather than saying she's a little overweight. Why? Because in our culture, thin is in and fat is ugly. But you see, that's not innate. There's nothing beautiful or ugly about being thin or being fat. It's culture. It's learnt. You see, beauty is much in the eye of the beholder. We're trained, we're cultured to appreciate a certain kind of look. I'll give you another example. For centuries, women made sure that their skin was pale white. In the 18th century in Europe, women would paint their skin white. And paracels were typically a part of a woman's dress or bonnets. Why? Because the sign of a worker was dark skin. The laborers, the people had to work in the fields, the poor people, and they had very dark skin because they were constantly exposed to the sun. The sign of the aristotic group, the higher level, was white skin, and that was considered a sign of beauty for hundreds of years. In our day, that's not quite the way it is. Tanned, bronze, is considered very attractive. Tanned or white is neither beautiful or the opposite. You're trained in it based on culture, based on the way you're brought up. And if you'd like to imagine what that means, I'll give you a very simple example. Imagine you had a boy who was brought up in China, and every single woman he saw from the time he was born had thick, straight hair, black, very, very slanted eyes, and very slim of built. And that's how he grew up his whole youth. Then he turns 20, 21, and he comes to America, and it's time he's read a shidduch. And he's read this woman. I mean, she's, first of all, her hair is such, not even black, it's, it's just some blonde color. And she's so big. And look at those eyes. She would look ugly to him. Why? Because everything he's been exposed to, everything he's seen, everything that he learned was beautiful, was straight, black hair, slanty eyes, thin build. And beauty is learnt. But you see, this is really the point. Desire is innate to the human, but what we desire is learnt and can be trained. And not only can it be trained, it will often change throughout your life. And of this, I'll give you a very clear example. If you have a 14-year-old boy and he's attracted to a 13-year-old girl, you'll want to make sure he doesn't spend too much time thinking about it, too much time involved, but that's a sign that he's healthy, things are well, And that should not be much cause of concern. A 14-year-old boy attracted to a 13-year-old girl is normal. But what if at the age of 45, he's attracted to a 13-year-old girl? Then even in the perverse state of immorality we live in today, that's considered a perversion and it's considered a deviant person. But why? When he was 14, he was attracted to that. When he was 14, that image, that look, was very desirous. Why would it be now considered deviant when he's 45? And the answer is what you desire changes as you grow up, as you mature, your desires are supposed to mature. And this is a tremendous principle. Desire is inborn in the human. And it's very, very difficult to change. As a matter of fact, if you spend 30 years, 40 years on training yourself in desire, you might nudge it a little bit. 
However, as difficult as desire is to change, what you desire is a lot easier to change. And what you desire is something that is within our capacity to change, to mold, because again, desire itself is innate, but what you desire can be learned, can be trained. No matter how beautiful a young man's mother is, he won't be desirous of her. Why? So out of bounds. He could have a beautiful sister. He's not going to desire her. Why? Because it's so out of realm. It's not an object of desire. Because again, desire is inborn. And what we desire, we can learn, is train. And one has the ability to sublimate it, to change it, to desire different things. One more step that's very important. I want you to imagine the following. I want you to imagine that you are shipwrecked on a deserted island. You got off the boat barely alive, and you're the only human being on this island, and there's nothing to eat. Plenty of water, but you scrounge around day after day, and you're famished. There's literally nothing to eat on the entire island. On the third day, finally, under a tree, you see a brown paper bag. You rush over to it. You open it, and inside is a peanut butter sandwich that baked in the sun for the past six months. You pick it up and wolf it down more quickly than anything you've eaten in your life. Now, here's the point. You ate that sandwich with a tremendous amount of desire, a lot of passion. How much pleasure did you have? I doubt that this is going to be a red-letter day in your life for the rest of your life, remembering the delicious flavor of this putrid peanut butter and the dry, crackled bread as it scratched my throat. You had very little pleasure from that activity, but there was a whole lot of desire, a whole lot of passion. And this distinction between passion and pleasure is something that we often get mistaken about. Passion is the drive, the urge, the need. Pleasure is the enjoyment, the gratification, and they're vastly different. And I'll share with you one more example just to bring this home. I was at a Shabbaton for youth at risk, and a certain question came up, and I turned it over to the mentor. The mentor was a 28-year-old fellow who had been addicted to drugs. He had since recovered, and he was now involved in helping young men not make the mistakes that he made. And I asked him to tell his story, and he described the following. The first time I got high, there was nothing like it in the world. It was so incredible. It was the most pleasurable experience I ever had. And the next time I tried to match it, but I couldn't. And I tried again, and I tried again, and I tried again. And I got so into drugs that I no longer could get high. But I desperately craved them. I got hooked. I got addicted. And it got to the point where I'd wake up in the floor in my own vomit. And I had no pleasure from the drugs, but I craved it. I needed it. At that moment, I knew I was stuck. You see, you could have a craving. You could have a huge urge but that doesn't mean you derive any pleasure from that activity. And this distinction between pleasure and passions is one that's so often mistaken. Just because you desire something doesn't mean it delivers pleasure. And because you have pleasure doesn't necessarily mean you have a desire for it. And I'd like to share with you, I believe that's the answer to this Rashi. You see, Hashem created us for our position in the world to come. And ultimately, the reason we're here is to grow and accomplish, to change the essence of I, but Hashem wants us to enjoy our stay in the planet even when we're here. And one of the most uncomfortable situations human can being can be in is when you desire something and you cannot fulfill that desire. If you can't afford meat and you desire meat, are you going to be broken? 
Are you going to be destroyed? No, but it's uncomfortable. And Hashem doesn't want us to be uncomfortable. And Hashem says, don't desire meat until you can afford it. You see, the Jewish people had spent 40 years in Midbar. All they ate was mun. And they didn't learn yet to desire meat because they hadn't eaten meat. They were all born in the Midbar and they hadn't eaten it. They were aware of it and they realized it tastes good. And the Torah is teaching us that because you didn't taste it yet, it's easily within your control not to desire it. And don't give in and don't allow yourself to desire it until you can afford it. Why? Because if you desire it and you can't afford it, it's going to be uncomfortable and you're going to be unhappy. And the Torah doesn't want that. The Torah wants us to be happy, to be fulfilled, to be satisfied. And I believe this Rashi is a fundamental concept for life. Number one, in terms of working on desire, knowing that desire is inborn and I'm not going to stop it. But what I desire is learned is a huge, huge principle for self-mastery. And most of the Torah demands from us self-mastery. And if you're going to try to stop desire, forget it, you're going to fail. And you can't stop desire, but what you desire, you can train yourself in. If you work on it, if you're diligent, if you're focused, and you can learn to sublimate, you can learn to divert, you can learn to desire what you wish to desire and not desire that which you don't wish to desire. And that's a huge concept. And that alone will be worth our stopping on. But that's not the point I want to share with you this evening. It's a second point, that Hashem wants us to be happy in this world. And the reason why I think that's a very relevant point is because in the course of history, there has never been this much wealth, abundance, luxuries. There's never been this kind of available goods, services. Everything is available at our fingertip. You go into Walmart, you'll see row after row after row of every imaginable goods, and all of us can afford it. So here's the observation. Never in the course of history has there been this much wealth, and I believe never in the course of history have been this many people unhappy, but not just emotionally unhappy, with unmet needs. I need more. I have to have more. I don't have this. I don't have that. I need this. I need a new dress. I need a new car. I need a new set of clothing. And it's astonishing that we are so wealthy and yet we're so needy. And I'd like to share with you the why behind it. There is a word that's very, very telling. It's called a consumer. A consumer, which means you and I, when when we're in the marketplace, the word consume means to swallow up, as in to ingest, to consume an object. A consumer is one who ingests the object. And we are trained, skilled, and constantly focused on one single concept. You need, you need, you need every ad. Every single ad you're going to see is going to sell the need. You have to have it. You need more. It's not good enough. You didn't even know there was such an object, but suddenly you need it. And we are inundated. Madison Avenue are highly skilled. And I don't care where you get your news from, and I don't care what you're looking at. It could be the bus stop. It could be CNN. It could be the newspaper. You're going to see an untold amount of advertisements that are going to sell you on a new need that you didn't know you had. And even if you had that need before, it's going to sell you on a new model, a new version, a new something that you now need that you didn't need before. And we are incredibly needy. Why? Because we're being trained and constantly exposed to the fact that you don't have enough, you need more, you need more. And guess what? When you need, and by and large, you can't afford it because no one can afford 
everything that my eye sees, you're going to be unhappy. And it's a rather strange thing because it's not just that we are in the age of consumerism. We are in the age of competitive acquisition. Competitive acquisition means you're rated by how much you can acquire. As in a man's wealth is his scorecard, but his wealth is measured by what he acquired. How big is your house? How fancy is your boat? How new is your car? And the competitive acquisition culture trains us and teaches us that making us making it in this world is bigger, better, more. He has made it. He's worth $100 million. Wow, he won. And the rule of thumb is, he who dies with the most toys wins. Well, I'd like to share with you two observations of that. If you are a member of this culture, you will be incredibly needy. Incre- because even if you got the brand new yacht, your buddy down the block got a bigger yacht or a new one. And even if you got the brand new Tesla, there was a new model and a better model. And suddenly you see that you don't have the best. And you will be needy for the rest of your life. Constantly needy, constantly needy. But more than that, you're going to be empty. Why? And because Hashem created us for a purpose. Hashem took us un- from under the throne of glory. Hashem put us into this world to grow and accomplish. And Hashem gave us all the tools that we need to do just that. And when you use this thing called life for what it was intended to be used, there's an inner satisfaction and there's a glow, there's a happiness. But if you use this thing called life for any purpose other than what your creator intended it to be used for, there's an inner disharmony, a vacuous sense of what's it about, and the pursuit of wealth, the acquisitional prosperity that we're so engaged in leads to one simple thing. You get on that rat race, you run, you run, you acquire, and you acquire a lot, and you acquire even more. And the more you acquire, the more you need. The more you acquire, the more empty you are inside. You try for more, you try for more, you need more, you need more. You're more empty inside, and you're on this ever, never-ending rat race. And guess what? A, you're not happy. B, you're empty inside. C, you're wasting your life. The problem is, though, that we live in a culture that's so pervasive. And I mean, even in the from society. Bigger houses, nicer cars, better wardrobes. You see kids who wear clothing that you and I can't even imagine how the parents afford. And the competition to be at least keeping up with the cones, at least not to be on top, but at least to be up, is tremendously, tremendously difficult. And a person has to recognize the cost. Keeping up with the cones has the cost of A, being unhappy, B, being empty, C, you're going to potentially waste your life. And I'll share with you the key reason. You see, within every one of us is this need to grow and this need to change. And you're either going to use that properly and grow and change, work on your midos, work on learning, work on dominating, being a better person, or you're going to sublimate that. You're going to divert that need to grow into other things. It could be reputation. It could be fame or it could be the acquisition of physical possessions. I acquire more and more. I need more, more money, more stock. My portfolio is growing. I'm becoming bigger and bigger and bigger. And you're sublimating. You're diverting a powerful urge to grow into something that's so empty, and you're wasting one of the most powerful features that Shem put in creation. And not only are you going to waste your opportunity to call life, 
you're going to be at the core of your essence, miserable and unhappy. And that brings us to a major assault. Okay, let's say I work on this. And let's say I say, I get it, the tinsel, the gold, I'm not into it. And I'm really, really focused on it. But here's the problem. I look around and so many people have so much more than me. And so many people have so much better. And they have so much an easier time. How do, I, how do I reconcile that? How do I make peace with that? How could I actually be happy with my lot in life? And I'd like to share with you something that I think is fundamental. I've mentioned this a number of times. The Chavaz of tells us the Yisod for Bitochan is two concepts. Number one, Hashem loves me more than I love me. Number two, Hashem knows better than I what's for my best. Hashem loves me more than I love me means as much as I'm concerned for my good, as much as I want my betterment, as much as I want everything in the world for me to work out well, Hashem wants it even more. Because as much as I love me, Hashem loves me even more. That's the first concept. And that one isn't so difficult. It's a second one that typically gives us a lot of trouble. The idea that Hashem knows better than I what's for my best is something that's very, very difficult to grapple with. And when you understand that Hashem handcrafted for you an exact stage setting, put you into a body with a given temperament, given talents, given strengths, given weaknesses, and said, this is a life that is ideal for you to succeed. It's not the ideal life for him, not the ideal life for her. It may not include luxuries. It may not include wealth. In fact, it may be the opposite. The struggle itself might be what you need for whatever the reason, either to recognize your dependence on Hashem or to remain humble or whatever the reason is, but this is the ideal state setting for you. But the problem is, how do I make peace with that? How do I embrace that when my neighbor is driving this fancy vehicle, when his kids are dressed to the T's, when he's going to Pesach programs and insurance programs and money is no object and I'm literally scraping it out? How do I make peace with that? And the only way you make peace with that is if you climb into the adult mind and climb out of the child's mind. In the child's mind, what I want is good. And if it's good and I want it, you have to give it to me. And if you don't give it to me, it means you don't love me. You see, in the child's mind, what I want is good. And if you love me, you would give it to me because it's good. And if you don't give it to me, obviously you don't love me. But it's the parent as the adult mind who can say to the child, not everything you want is for your good. And not everything that's good is always good. And because I love you, I'm not giving this to you. Why? Because it's not for your betterment. And when you climb into the parent's perspective and you look from the outside back at your life, you're able to reestablish priorities and reestablish your focus and recognize that Hashem handcrafted, custom designed for me, the perfect life. Not the easiest life, not the life maybe that I would have chosen, but the one that's perfect for my growth. I think this Rashi shares with us a tremendous yesod. And desire is inborn. But what you desire can be trained. Hashem said, don't desire meat until you can afford it. Why? Because Hashem doesn't want us to be unhappy. And understanding that is the basics to working on desire. You're not going to stop desire. But you can change what you desire. And certainly in terms of being happy in our world, in the world of luxuries and consumerism, if you allow yourself to get pulled into this needy, needy, needy mode, you will be ever unhappy, ever unmet needs, ever in a state of, I wish I had, but I don't. 
and stopping it and recognizing it's not where the action's at. It's not why I was put here. And more than that, it won't make me happy is a very difficult battle. The key to winning the battle is stepping outside your life, recognizing that all that glitters is not gold. And you see the amount of suffering that people go through and the amount of pain. And everybody loves to say, yeah, just give me the money. I'll, I'll take it. Don't worry about it. I can be rich and be happy. They get the money and they're not happy. And when you step away from the child's mind, you recognize that not everything we desire is good for us. And not everything that's even good for us is always good for us. You step into the adult mind. You recognize that Hashem created me, put me here to grow, gave me everything I need to grow, and will give me exactly what I need in my right time. And this concept is fundamental to being happy and fundamental to finding peace in life. And now I'd like to turn over the floor to Ushi. And please feel free, if you like, you can type questions in. I much prefer if you would actually raise your hand. Um, you can raise your hand at any time, and Ushi will call on you. Uh, but at this point, I'm going to call, turn over the mic to Ushi, and he's going to moderate. Ushi, thank you. Rabbi Shepard, please make me a co-host, if you don't mind. Oh, I'm still sorry. Anybody watching it on tour anytime, if you can come on to Zoom, uh, the code is 849-8874-0156. Again, that's 849-8874-0156. Because um, then we could ask Rabbi Shepard questions. Raise your hand. Again, Rabbi Shepard wants to share it to be dynamic. Um, it's a very hot topic. Gelt talks, right? Money talks. Right. And, uh, it's definitely an important topic. So we have a few Big questions over here um, that got emailed, but let's start with some basic ones. Um, somebody texted in, actually, to me. who was watching it. Logically, I understand what Rebbe is saying, but at the end of the day, I like stuff, I, I, and I could afford it, so I buy it. How could I stop my desire? My wife, my children, they all live this way. Right. Um, it's very well, difficult. He has the money. He has the money. Got, okay. He's got the money. And again, I'm, I'm being candid. It is very difficult because it's glittery. It's gold. It looks good. And it requires a lot of training to recognize how empty, how vain, how foolish it is because it does a lot of things. First of all, if you could afford it, you might potentially regret deeply what you do to your children. You make other people jealous. And more than that, I'll share with you an interesting story from Rav Chaim. A certain man who was in this sort of position where he made a fortune of money. And he was very, very successful. And he gave Chomish. He didn't just give Meister. He gave 20% of his income to Stucker. He was known as a big ball Stucker. And at a certain point, he decided he wanted to buy a Jaguar. He wanted to buy a particular model, a very expensive Jaguar. And his wife said, you can't do it. Everybody's going to be jealous. It's not right. You're going to make, you're going to burn people's eyes out. Don't do it. And he wanted it. His wife said, don't do, don't, don't. His wife said, you want to do it, go to Reb Chaim. Now, because he was a big belt stucker, he had it in with Rav Chaim Kanievsky. He flew to Israel, and he went to Rav Chaim, and he asked him the question. I have the money. It's not a problem. I give homage. I give 20% to stucker. I have enough money left over. I'd like to buy a car. My wife is afraid that other people might be jealous. Can I buy the car? Rav Chaim looked at him and said, tell me, is there one mesecht in Shas that you've mastered, that you own totally? man said, no. I said, a parak. Is there a parak in Shas that you know backwards and forwards, that you really know claw? No. Chaim said, is there a blot? Is there one blot Gemara that you've mastered that you own? And the man said, no. Rav Chaim said, you can buy the car. Don't worry about it. No one's going to be jealous of you. And I want to share with you what Rav Chaim was saying. In his mindset, <clears throat> values were so clear 
that how could you be jealous of a guy who can't learn? How could you be jealous of a guy who's so unaccomplished, who's so ignorant, who's so undeveloped? And if you train your eyes to see, you begin desiring different things. You desire growth. You look at people of Bali Chesed. You look at people who do major things to the community and you say, wow, that's gorgeous. I wish I could be like that. You see people who learn. You see people who dominate. You say, wow, I wish I could be like that. You see, desire is innate. You're going to desire what others have. But you can train yourself to desire significant things and real things, not the tinsel. And the more you train your eye to be interested and allured and pulled by the gold, by the glitter, the more you're going to be pulled away from real values and the more you're going to find yourself washed away, wasting your time. The solution is to train yourself, to train your eyes to look at other people and to be jealous, but not jealous of their bank account and jealous of their accomplishments, jealous of their change, jealous of how they treat their children, how they treat their wife, jealous of this man's reputation, but an earned reputation, a reputation of being a real Baal When you train your eyes to see that, you develop a sense of, wow, I would like to be that. And then that desire to change, to grow, is directed properly, and you use it as a tool for growth. So I hope that answers the question. It's not a quick solution, but it's, I believe, an approach. We've got a lot of questions, similar case scenarios. We'll get to them. Again, anybody wants to ask a question, please text it in. Uh, on the question box, or to Rabbi Schaefer, or to me, or raise your hand, and uh, let's try to get dynamic. Let's really get to the bottom of this. Very interesting question over here. It's actually one of my questions. It's okay. a question I had for years. If a person is giving their obligation on my side, I'm just going to add, doing their Chaymish Plus, are they free to spend the rest on whatever wealth, Gashmias, Taiwa, they would like to? Okay, the answer is absolutely. It's a free country, and you can do whatever you want to do. The question is, will you be happy with that? Or will you regret it? And the Chavaz of explains to us that Hashem grants wealth for a purpose. That purpose is to do things with it, to accomplish things with it. You weren't granted wealth to be a nar, to go roll in the mud. The problem is, the more you get into the luxuries, the more you get into the fancy lifestyle, number one, you destroy your children. I think I mentioned this, I, I'm pretty sure I did, but if I, I want to repeat it. If I did, you'll excuse me for repeating it. My brother-in-law is a mechanic, and he told me the following event. There was a seventh grader who was in the office, and he didn't belong in the office. And the Skan Menal, the assistant principal, said to him, could you please not be in the office? Students aren't allowed in there. And the seventh grader puts his hands on his hips and says, you're going to tell me what to do? My father pays for the school. You're going to tell me what to do? You're not telling me what to do. I'm telling my father. Could you imagine the destruction of that child's existence? What kind of husband is he going to be? What kind of father is he going to be? What the father has done inadvertently, unintentionally, is ruined his child. And when you spoil your kids and you give them everything, they're the rich kid. I'm the, diff- I'm the better. I'm- <clears throat> if you have all the money in the world, and my wife and I say this often, It'd be wonderful to win the large lotto, $365 million, as long as no one finds out. Because if one person finds out, it's not worth it. Why? Because your life is suddenly changed, and not in the good way. Your life is changed in a very, very negative way. Wealth is a tremendous bracha, but it's a bracha given to be used. I know a number of people who are extremely wealthy, and they live in houses more simple than mine, 
drive cars nowhere near as not well, my car isn't so nice either. And but the point is they live simple lives because they understand Hashem granted them wealth not to waste their life with, not to just squander it, but to accomplish, to do things with it. And, and wealth is a bracha if it allows you to now have time to learn, to grow, to dive and to be involved in the tzibur. If you use your wealth now to spend on various luxuries and palaces, and what you're doing is you're squandering it, you're getting involved in this world, and in the world to come, you will deeply regret it because you could have done so much with it and you didn't. Now you don't recognize that. Then you will. So the answer is yes, you're free to do anything you want. The question is, is it wise? And will you be happy with your choices later on? Okay, somebody texted it. I have so many questions here. I have a, somebody wrote a, a Langa Megillah. Can I read it? It's like a whole Parsha. Do you have, oh, you have a few minutes for me to read it? I read it. Yeah, please go ahead. Okay. It's a long story. It's three paragraphs. I suffer very much in many areas of my life. Baruch Hashem, I do not suffer health-wise. I do not suffer with children at risk, so far at least. I daven that it should continue. However, how I however suffer greatly with myself. I suffer from anxiety. I suffer with self-esteem. self-esteem. I feel like nothing, deep down and not so deep down. I know that I have tremendous potential, both spiritually and financially. However, I'm smashed and bashed by my family for years. I grew up in a toxic, toxic home, very critical, no positivity whatsoever. After marriage, my family added my wife to their chopping block too, as we're the, more the independent type. I never followed the herd. I had my own mind, and so did my wife. It is, okay, it is this is that I attribute most of my suffering. I'm, I have a very difficult time finding myself. This greatly affects me financially, emotionally, and socially. So basically, the family, for whatever, not explaining it, you know, whatever they did emotionally to this person and now to the wife of years has affected him emotionally, physically, and socially. My question is somewhat twofold. How do I move past all this question? I, I honestly wish I could move past my feelings. I don't think they bring me much good. However, how do I forgive a family that I have never bothered to ask for forgiveness? Do I even belong, do I even belong forgiving them? How do I relate to them? They seriously altered my life. The way I see it forever, I cried out to them so many times, and they simply ignored me. How can how do I forgive such people, such evil people, in so many, in my eyes? And why should I forgive them? They've caused me years of suffering, thousands of dollars in therapy fees that I could not afford, and still suffering away. My life is still in shambles. And why do I forgive people that altered? Why and why should I forgive people that altered the lives of myself, my wife, and my children? I could be a way better spouse a better father, if I did not suffer the way I did on so many levels? And why are they, diff- why are they different than Hitler's Yamashimamoparos who did not pass because Hashem wanted it to happen, as you explained last week? They did not need to choose being such a shliach. And I understand why Hashem put me, I, how do I understand why Hashem put me in this situation? I have heard about life settings, but I have a hard time understanding how this is perfect for me. You, could, you will say we don't understand everything, and I agree I realize I need to grow to the most I I could be, not the next person, but it's very hard on a day-to-day level and even on a grand scale. I hear about 23 questions in that. Okay, good. All right. That is, yeah, as you said, Megillah. But um, I do want to want to share one perspective, um, and that is, you know, the Gemara in Brachas tells us that Atana was walking, he had learned Torah Harbe, and he was apparently he had a little bit of gaiva in his heart, and Eliyahu appeared to him as a ish mechuar ma'od, very, very ugly. And his Tana said to him, how ugly are you? 
And Elio and Novi, dressed as this ugly man, said, don't complain to me, complain to my creator. Now, there's a lot to learn from that Gemara, but I want to share with you one perspective. You see, you'll note that many people have complaints against their upbringing, against their siblings, against their parents. I was brought up in a toxic environment, and I'm, I'm only saying this from a Shkafic standpoint, and I don't want to make light of anyone's pain, but I'll share with you one simple observation. I'll almost guarantee that you had siblings who lived in the same toxic environment, and yet they weren't destroyed, and they weren't damaged. And I almost guarantee that you have other siblings who have a healthy self-image, a healthy self-esteem. So how could it be? And I'd like to share with you the great Yesod. And the great Yesod is you were born different than your siblings. You have a sensitivity, and you have a certain maybe lack of inner security, and for you, that environment was destructive. For your other siblings, it probably wasn't even anything. They didn't even notice it. They, didn't even, they weren't even aware of it. You know, anybody who has a number of children can tell you that they're brought up vastly differently, not because the parents treat them any differently, but because of the sensitivity of the children. So if you would like to address a taina, don't address it to your parents. Address it to the one who created you. And why was I born so sensitive? Why did I have to be born with the type of self-image that the slightest comment or whatever, even a negative comment from my parents would be destructive and I'd have these negative thoughts and this constant brew within me? Don't complain to your parents. Complain to the one who made you. And the reason why I think that change in focus is essential is because when you put the blame where it deserves to be, you can begin answering the question. You see, you have to recognize none of us get to choose our life setting. I didn't get to choose this body. You didn't get to choose that body. I didn't choose this intellect. You didn't choose that intellect. Each of us were given different strengths, different weaknesses, and each of us were given one job, perfect yourself. But I carry a different load than you do. My load may weigh 100 pounds. Your load may weigh 400 pounds. I may run a mile, and wow, look at me. You can barely walk two blocks, and I feel like a big shot. I'm so much better than you. But there's only one thing I'm not taking into account. I'm held accountable for much more because my load is so much lighter. Your load is so much heavier, and what's expected of you is much less. Now, you and I don't get to choose. We don't get to choose our load. We don't get to choose what we were pretty to accomplish. We don't get to choose the settings that we were given. But each of us are asked one question when we leave this earth. How much of you did you become? How much did you grow? How much of your load did you carry effectively and efficiently? And when you understand that, you understand that it could be you'd be much more effective in Parnassus and learning as a, and everything if you didn't have these insecurities. But guess what? Your creator who knows your nature, your creator who loves you more than you love you, puts you into a body with a given temperament, a given sensitivities, given weaknesses, and puts you into a family. I doubt the family was toxic to any one of the other siblings. I doubt it was disastrous or damaging to anyone else, but to you it was. But why? Because that's what you needed. But why do I need this? Why can't I have that one situation, that one situation? The answer is because you're different than him. I'm different than you. And each of us were handcrafted the exact state settings for us by our creator. So go blame your creator. And when you blame your creator, hopefully you'll take the next step to recognize that not everything that I see as for my best is. I learned that Hashem knows better than I what's for my best. And Hashem gave me this life setting for me to grow, not to make the most money, not to be the best learner, but for me to reach my level of perfection and I'm judged based on my load. 
when you understand that you're able to make peace, you recognize your parents didn't do anything to you. No human being can help you. No human being can harm you. Hashem runs the world. You make peace with your situation. You embrace it. And you reach a state where you're able to really change and grow. But she, I also said a Megillah. He, the question was a Megillah. I said a Megillah. So Megillah for Megillah. I think it's even, right? There you go. That's a great question. It's an amazing question. I understand everything Rabbi Schaefer is saying. I agree with it a thousand percent. However, he just said it himself with the story of Chaim. You see today, even the people who are officially B'nai Torah are also heavily steeped into Gashmis. Why it makes us so much harder when all the people like me and you, aside from this, what we discussed here is literally telling one individual to go up against the world. And I refer to the firm world. The question, I'm going to emphasize the question. You see a lot of times, again, not in a negative way, but it's just something that we have to deal with. Somebody who's a, a nobody or a nothing. I, I'll give you an example. I had a guy that was a very good friend of mine. He was nobody spoke to him in shul. The guy started making a few bucks. When he walks into shul, it's like, it's like this, like, it's like as if like literally like the Donald Trump is walking into shul. It's like this, like a roar, like he's going to throw out the money with him. So why, why does Hashem make it that, that it's such a value, especially in our society? Okay, you're right. You become very intelligent. The difference between an eccentric and a kook is $100 million, right? The minute you get some money, you become very brilliant, very wise. Everyone wants your, everyone wants your opinion. So and the reason why Hashem made that is because guess what? Hashem is very good at doing that, which Hashem does. In other words, meaning there is a real thing called an assignment in life. And if there wasn't an assignment, what are we here for? Meaning it really does look grand and glorious. And all the Rishi Shivas talk to him, and the Rav talks to him, and everyone has time for me, they don't have time for but him, they do. And it looks very glorious, and it looks, wow, I want it. That's the Nesayan. But the Nesayan is the point. Hashem is very good at giving us tests that we're able to withstand, but we're challenged. We have to really work on withstanding it. And recognizing that He is nothing. He's green and crumply. You look like a million dollars means you look green and crumply. You don't, when I look at a human being and I see dollar bills, I'm... What am I? I'm devaluing, but that's how we look at people. And when you see the rich guy, and everyone wants to be that way, and everyone's that's called an assignment. Good morning. How am I going to? What am I going to tell you? Other than that is probably one of the biggest shoners of our generation. Because you're right, it's many good people, and the people who get honored at the dinners, and the people whose names are on all the boards and etc. They're not necessarily better than you and I, but they make more money or spend that money, and suddenly they're treated with honor, and it looks very grand and glorious. And I want it. You're right, I want a lot of things, but just because I want it doesn't mean it's good for me. And training myself to recognize that which I want may not be so good for me. And more than that, if I want that and train myself to see it, all I'm going to want is more and more and more and more. And because much like desire, covered is a huge, huge pull. People destroy their lives for covered. And they'll destroy everything for covered. And the minute you start pursuing it, you are toast. So you have to recognize how foolish it is, how 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 totally empty it is. And when you're able to step back and look at it that way, you say, very nice. I don't want a part of it. I'm not interested in that rat race. I have my job. And again, the Nassayan is to keep the adult's mind and not fall prey to the child's mind where it looks so good, I want it, I want it, I want it. And to step back and recognize that not everything I want is for my best. Did I answer the question a little bit? It's two questions that are very similar, and I want to emphasize that if we could. No one raising, everyone's too shy to raise their hand and ask. A bunch of shy people, everyone's shy tonight? I don't know what's going on. I think no, I don't know. Maybe they're counting the money. Oh. My kids are totally obsessed with stuff. How could I show them how to appreciate what they already have 
And how can I cut back on competitive between pairs? A, how do I do? How do I strike the right balance between raising my kids, not being spoiled brats, and not letting them feel deprived? And now, and I'll just add my own little error. I feel I, I live in a Lakewood with a lot of development, and I feel a lot of people today they buy their kids five hundred dollar scooters and extremely expensive stuff. Forget about whether having the money or not. Let's say I do have the money. The the the, the when your kid says what well, everybody else has such an expensive bike. Or everybody else has this, and, and they're right, technically. So how do you balance between what's right, but you know Lemaisa is completely crazy? Okay, that is a very, very difficult balance. So the rule of thumb is you can't deprive your child. If everyone in your child's peer group has those pair of sneakers, has that scooter, has that bag, you can't ask your child to be less than everyone else. But I mean, if everyone else, I mean, I don't mean if the top, you know, two richest girls in class have it, the three, you know, if it's everyone has it, you can't ask your child to have less than everyone else has because it's really, it's very, very, very difficult for a child to balance that and, and to not feel inferior and to not have a, not have a bitterness within their soul. So if you can move to a less expensive area, go for it. Unfortunately, often we can't. And therefore, you got to give your kids what they need. And what they need is if everyone else has it, they need it. And again, that doesn't mean if the three richest girls in the class come in with the kind of shoes, whatever, I'm saying if the the majority, most have, everyone has, all their friends have it, you're right, you can't, you can't deprive them because again, it'd be depriving them of something everyone else has and they'll be bitter, they'll be broken, you can't do it. You have to do your best. We live in a blessed times, wealth and abundance, which is a huge bracha, but also comes at a cost. And training your kids and telling them again and again, this is not what counts, this is not what matters. And you try your best. Again, you try to give them what they need, which again means keeping up with what their peer group has. And you try to educate them the best you can, but you can't protect them unless you're able to leave that society, unless you're able to go to a different neighborhood, a different area, a different school, where that's not the norm, you can't expect your kids to be there and be deprived, and therefore you have to just work on it and explain to them what your priorities are, what your values are, and hopefully, eventually, they get it. Rashef, after all you share him about how do you convince your spouse and get them to do what you want to do with all your methods, this is the next question. How do I encourage my wife to stop spending money on things we don't need? Okay, the marriage seminar is available online. It's a 12-part sure It's either on the schmooze.com or on the schmooze podcast or on the schmooze app. Listen to the marriage seminar. That's all I can tell you. Um, how can you convince your wife not to spend money that you don't need to? So was the question that you don't need to, or she come back for a second? Was the question money that she doesn't need to spend? On things that we don't need. Uh, thank you. Things that we don't need. Okay. So now, first of all, let me share with you something very, very eye-opening. We has two parts to it, me and you. We don't need it means I don't need it. But guess what? Your wife might. And you don't have a right to be the dictator. In other words, it's a partnership. You don't feel you need it. I get it. Your wife feels you do need it. Well, guess what? She might need it. You don't have a right to be a dictator. Now, there's a certain reality that you can't afford it. That's another issue. In other words, one of the things you have to do when you're young is create a budget and live within the budget. And budget means this is the amount of money that we make. 10% goes to MISER, 10% goes to savings. What's left, we live on. 
and you have to budget out from this amount of money. We have enough money for this, for this, for this. We don't have enough money for this. If you do it as a budget and you do it regularly and you'd start it when you're young, there's a hope that everyone has a realistic understanding. There's this much money. We don't have more and we can't spend. But if you don't have a budget to start demanding, don't spend there, you're spending too much, you're spending, what you're really saying is, I don't need this, you do need it, my needs come before yours, and guess what? You're not going to be too popular. And it's unfair. So I don't know what to tell you. It's, it's a rough uh, situation. You have to have a budget. A budget means, again, there's a dollar amount that I make. This is the amount of money we have. This is, goes to MISA, this goes to saving. This is all that's left. We allocate it to here, to here, to here, to here. Let's, let's decide how much we're going to spend here, how much we're going to spend here. And that's all we have. More than that, we don't have. More than that, we can't spend. Good luck. We're getting a lot more questions here. It's really uh, piling up. Anybody wants to ask, raise your hand. But uh, I got a lot of questions here. I'm going to ask this one, but then you know, could ask us 50 different ways. Our family business has been devastated by Corona. So now I am forced to figure out how to cut back on everything. I feel so depressed every time I go to the grocery store shopping. I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to deal with this. Does Rabbi Schaefer have any advice on how to stop wanting all the things that I used to have and learning how to take it down a few notches? Now, that's somebody who obviously had money, lost money. And then I have a few other texts. I just want to read their questions. People that older people never got a job, never made it anywhere. People that are all struggling in different financial aspects. And they're, they, you know, at the end of the day, they feel it, especially when they're doing their, let's go into the word needs versus wants. And it's, and it's very painful. Yes, it is very, very painful. And there's a bracha that we make every morning that you have to really think about. Um, Chazal tell us that when you put on your shoes, remember the brachas were, were created in the morning through the process of getting dressed. And one of the brachas when you put on shoes was sha'asali koltsarki. But it doesn't mean that I'm thanking Hashem for creating my shoes because the words of the bracha is, Baruch Hashem, thank you Hashem, who created for me all of my needs. Sha'asali koltsarki. All of my needs, what that means in plain, simple language is not just everything, everything that I need. I recognize that Hashem is the creator of the world. I recognize that Hashem runs the world. I recognize that Hashem orchestrates every activity under the sun, and Hashem created for me all of my needs. Do you know if you say that bracha and you mean it, do you know how rich you are? I have everything that I could possibly need, everything. I have everything that I could possibly need. And guess what? If I don't have it, I don't need it. Oh, I may want it, but wants and needs, as you said, Oshie, are very different. And things that I want may be good for me, may not be good for me. I may want them, I may not want them. I but things that I need are needs. Hashem takes care of all of my needs. Anything that I need has been provided for me. Everything that I need will be given to me. If I find something that I, I don't have, I, 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 I need it and I don't have it, well, guess what? You don't need it. Because if you needed it, Hashem would give it to you. Now, this is easy for me to say because right now I'm not in your situation. I'm not lacking. And I don't feel other people have and I don't have. But this hashkafa is a very, very big yisod to learn, to think about, to grow in. And when you say those brachas in the morning, you should say it with an outpouring of joy. Those string of 16 brachas we say every morning. 
It's supposed to be said with joy, with a sense of happiness. Malbish Arum, Hashem, you give me clothing. Hashem, Pokeh, you give me eyes to see. Zokiv Kufufim, Hashem, you write the crooked. I can stand, I can walk, I have mobility. Baruch Hashem, Sha'asali called Tsarki Hashem, you made for me all of my needs. Anything that I need has been granted to me. And if I don't have it, it means I don't need it. But I want it, I want it. Yes, I want it. But wants and needs are very different. And if you don't have needs, you're in big trouble. If you don't have wants, you learn to live with it. You learn to adjust. And you learn to recognize that not everything I want is for my best. And you recognize that Hashem loves you more than you love you. And Hashem is putting you in this situation so you can grow, you can change. But when you recognize it's for my best, when you recognize that all of my needs are granted, you don't suffer, you embrace it. You embrace it with a sense of joy, of happiness. Baruch Hashem, Hashem loves me, and Hashem grants all of my needs, and you feel a sense of wealth, abundance, and happiness, because happiness and abundance are not based on physical, material possessions. They're based on an inner condition. You can have all the money in the world and be miserable. You can have no money and be happy. And recognizing that Hashem provides my needs is one of the sods for happiness, and one of the sods for amuna, and one of the sods for being a growing person. That's my answer, Rashi. Okay, this is an interesting twist. This is going the other way. I would like my husband to work less so that he could learn more. He also wants to learn more. I know this means sacrificing some of the luxuries and the lifestyle that we're currently living. Can Rabbi Schaefer offer some chizik on how to readjust our lifestyle so we could live for a higher purpose and meaning? Wow. Wow, I love it. First of all, go for it. Do it. Just do it. Do it. Do it. Go for it. Go for it. I'll tell you one thing. You're not going to be unhappy. I've never heard anybody who dedicates themselves more to growing, accomplishing, and says, oh, drat. I spent the past 10 years growing. I'm a different person. I, look, I know many people who look back on the past 10 years and said, what did I do? I made some money, spent that money, made some more money, spent that money, made the money, spent the money, then we die. Look, what did I do? I guarantee 10 years from now, you'll be 10 years older. <clears throat> Will you be 10 years greater, 10 years more accomplished, and 10 years more of a bigger person? How much money you make isn't going to determine who you are. What you do with your time is going to. And if you're actually able to do that, go for it. Just do it. and Go for it. And I guarantee you're not going to look back and say, drat. We could have made more money. Oh, drat. We, my husband learned more and he's a better person. He's a better mentor, a better husband, better father. But drat, we, we don't have all the money. I doubt that's going to happen. I doubt that's going to be the sense. So go for it. How many more questions? I have like three, four more. How many can we squeeze in? One or two? Tell me. One or two. Yeah, I'm. 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 I'm all right. I'll try to combine a few of them. Okay. Uh, let me combine these two. I will try so hard to do everything. I try so hard to do everything right. I wake up in the morning. I learn. I go to Dafiyomi. I help my wife. I help the children. I work hard. But Hashem is not opening up my gates of Parnosa. I'm struggling day to day. Hey, next person. I have. I want to have betachin that Hashem will provide for me what I need. But when my bank account is negative, I panic. I just start thinking maybe I need to work more. No, by the struggling. Okay, now maybe you do need to work more. I, I'm not. Listen, you know your shtadlus has to be real. Your shtadlus has to meet your life circumstances. If you have ten kids and uh, high bills, you have a mortgage, and and you you're making uh, you know thirty thousand dollars, hundred thousand dollars. It's it's never enough. You might have to work more. And I'm not going to tell you 
to work less if, in fact, you're not making ends meet. Now, that's a very different question than I'm not making enough or I could be making more or why do I have to eke it by? Why do I have to just get by and barely, you know, you haven't noticed somehow we all get by. Somehow we make the payment. Somehow we do pay the bills. So I'm not going to tell you if you're not paying the bills and if a person really is in arrears and you're really building up credit card debt and you're really behind, you have to change things because your standards then is to do something different. But assuming that you're basically, you know, kind of floating, you're kind of, you know, you're not putting money in savings, you're not really getting ahead. Okay, that's what it's supposed to be. And in recognizing that's what Hashem wants you, recognizing that that's exactly your matzav in life, provided you're doing a real establishment, you're putting in a real effort, you have to recognize it's exactly what Hashem wants you. In other words, you see, the most foolish mistake we make is to assume if Hashem loved me, he would give me $100 million and more than that. And the fact that this guy is rich must be Hashem loves him. It might well be that the reason why he's rich is because he's eating his olam haba in this world. It might well be the reason he's rich is because that's his Nisayan. And it might also be that the reason why he's rich is because it's a bracha. But how he uses his money is what's going to tell you. The Chavaz of explains three reasons why a person is granted wealth. You could tell right away why he was granted it. If he uses his time productively and he now grows and he learns more, he dominates more, he's involved in the community, and you know that's a bracha. If you see a man who's now constantly worried, constantly my portfolio, my investments, and you're watching a man who has an asayan. And if you see a man who buys the big palatial manor, buys the yacht and the mansion and the boat, you're looking at a man who's eating up his olam haba in this world. He's eating his world to come now. And because Hashem is punishing him and paying him back of the world to come currency in this world. So and when you look around and you see other people who are making it and doing phenomenally well, take a step back. I agree. If you see a man who then starts dominating, learning better, starts really dedicating himself to to Tzarki Tzibur, then maybe it's something to look at and say, why can't I be granted? And you have to recognize different people have different strengths. I might not be able to withstand it. I might not be able to do what he does, but I'm different than him, and I was given a different lifestyle. But when you see people squandering it and blowing it, don't be so jealous so quickly, because what really is happening is he might well be eating up his olam haba. It might be the biggest curse. It might be the thing he regrets more than anything else in the world to come. One last question? Yes, one last question, Rashi, because I'm... One last question and one joke, and then we're done. Okay. Fair enough. I'll, I'll say the joke. You'll say the answer to the question. The very wealthy man, he lost all his money. And he goes over to his rabbi and says, Rav, I don't understand why nobody comes to me anymore for the dog. I understand because I have no money. But they used to come to me for the eights for the understanding. They don't come anymore. <laughs> Final question of the night, the age-old question. Why are so many people who are bad have so much money? And while so many people who are so special have nothing to eat? Sadik for Raloi, for in money. Okay, the answer is Sheker. It's not true. False, false, not true. I can tell you from my own life, it's not true. It isn't true. And people, by and large, Bederech Klal, Tzadik Vitovlo, Russia Viralo. Now, there are exceptions. And Moshe Rabbeinu's question was the exceptions. How do you understand when you have a person who's a Russian, Hashem grants them? Okay, that's a good question. And you look in the Chavaz Vavah, says pages and pages answering it. But by and large, 
you'll see that people who do good, Hashem takes care of. People who are straight, who are honest, and people who are really growing and accomplishing, Hashem takes care of them. Now, I'm not telling you that if you're in Kolel for 25 years, you're going to be driving a Lincoln, you're going to be living in the house of luxury. I don't know if you should be learning for 25 years. Maybe some people certainly should be, and not everybody. And it could be, it's not for you to be there. But I can tell you, find me people, you look across the board, people who are doing good, Hashem takes care of, people who aren't doing good, it's something else. And by the way, the Rambam explains it. He says, don't you understand? Hashem wants for you the best. And Hashem looks at you and says, listen, if I give him a little bit of wealth, and I give him a little bit of menuchas and nefesh, he's going to learn more, he's going to dominate, he's going to be dedicated to Vodas Hashem. Of course Hashem will grant it to you. Why? Because it's good for you. Hashem wants only your best. Why would Hashem hold that back? Hashem only wants you to grow and accomplish. Unless you're a particularly unusual person, unless you're the type of tzaddik who needs a difficult situation, you're a rebelazer barpedas. But klal, if Hashem looks at you and says, if I grant him some menuchas and nefesh, some wealth, some liberty, he's going to take time to grow, to accomplish, and he's going to, why wouldn't Hashem give it to you? Because it's good for you, it's good for every. Of course Hashem will do it. So my answer to the question is, if you're honest, and you look around, you'll find the vast majority of the time, the people who are doing what's right and what's good, Hashem takes care of them, and they do very well, and people who are not doing so well, but there's a reason for it. Again, there are exceptions. And you will find great tzaddikim will suffer. You'll find great tzaddikim will have a very hard time. But again, that's the unusual exception because they needed that. That life circumstance was perfect for, for them. But Bederaklal, you do good. Hashem takes care of you. All right. I want to thank everyone for coming. Again, just a reminder, next week there is no Shmuz Live next week. My wife and I will be on vacation. Mitz Hashem. Uh, we'll resume it next week. There is a poll. You'll see an email for a poll to what day we're going to have the Shmuz live. It's either going to be Wednesday night or Thursday night, and you'll get to choose which night is better for you and a time based on whoever the uh, amount of people who respond will decide when it'll be. Please make sure if you're not getting the email for some reason, uh, go to the uh, Shmuz, to the um, to the sign-up page. The sign-up page is, drum roll please, Ushi, do you know the sign-up page? I think, no, one second. The Shmuz live. Is it the Shmuz live? Let me just check the schmoozlive.com. The schmooze live. Here it is. It's the yeah, it's the schmooze live. I'm gonna play you know what? I can't put it up here. But if you type in the schmooze live, the schmooze live, you'll you should be able to find it. It's a landing page. If not, we'll send it out in the email uh, and you'll be able to subscribe, you'll be able to get to, into it. Uh, I wish you much talk Again, if you want to join the WhatsApp group, three, four times a week we send out short inspirational videos. If you just send a, please subscribe to the following number, 845-216-9330. You can join it. Also, the new Shmooz book, Two Worlds, One Chance, is available. If you go to book, B-O-O-K dot com, the book is free. I only ask that you participate in the shipping. If you go to book, B-O-O-K dot T-H-E-S-H-M-U-Z dot com, you can get the book there. I wish you much atzlacha, a good Shabbos, and we'll see you in in two weeks. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.